Welcome back. It's episode 136 and uh, half of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast coming to you as we always do in the faculty lounge at the Epstein and U School of Law where everyone's too confused by the Malon Pitney statue to know whether or not to tear it down. That's right, fellas, you're going to have to sit through some of the same jokes. I am your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and guy who's currently buying up Washington Redskins merchandise in anticipation of an annuitized retirement via eBay. And I am joined, as always, by the Palmer and Nicholas of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Uh, By the way, I should note up top that next month in August, we're going to be doing our annual listener Q&A show. So if you're an OG Law Talk fan and you listen to the show via Ricochet, you can put your questions for the professors in the thread on this show. We'll have another thread closer to when the show airs. But if you're not, you can also email your questions uh, to me directly, Troy at ricochet.com. Gentlemen, so we are engaged in an exercise we haven't been through before uh, in the history of the show, which is a, a makeup show. We recorded an episode last week, I think probably the longest one we've ever done. We did about 90 minutes. It was really good, I thought. And we wrapped it up and we shut it down. And it turned out that we had recorded about 90 seconds of it. So this is our version of like when Hemingway's wife left all of his manuscripts on a train. So my quick sort of context-free recap for people who will never be able to hear this. Um, John likes to shoot guns on the 4th of July. The state of West Virginia may be unconstitutional. Uh, James G. Blaine wasn't actually anti-Catholic. He was just a cynical politician. And the best way to get into the pipeline for a Supreme Court appointment is to be an FOR, which stands for Friend of Richard. And with that, but, I mean, I think we're all caught up. So, fellas, um, how are we doing? I would note, as I look out my window at the New York skyline, that if the two of you are essentially America in microcosm, I have no reason to think as a demographic matter that you're not, the cities are in trouble. Because can I, can I announce that both of you are now leaving your urban centers and decamping for the suburbs? Is, is this driven by what the past few months have looked like? Are you asking me that question? I'll start with you, Richard, um, because nature insists upon it. As ever, it's always a situation where multiple factors come together, and it's a combination of family situation on the one hand and a sort of massive dissatisfaction with the public administration in Chicago. Um, I might have done this anyhow, but once you start to see all the places beneath us boarded up and all sorts of uneasiness upon the streets, um, uh, you can see a sense that if you have an option of being in Chicago or somewhere else, uh, probably go somewhere else. I-, I cannot say enough bad words about the sort of general administration in the city and in the state. Um, it, it seems they have no sense of fiscal responsibility, no respect for property rights, uh, uh, no respect for peace, uh, no willingness to use the peace in order to enforce things against violence. And, you know, there comes a point at which that clearly enters into it. I don't think I'm alone on this thing. Uh, most of these cases are joint influences. But if you look at Chicago, you look at Illinois, I'm, uh, I have a large number of friends who are sort of just not living in either of these cities 
now. And if the schools don't open, many of them will decide not to return. And then when they decide that their children will be in school in some other location, they may not return again. I think it's more acute for New York than it is for Chicago. Uh, but the people who are leaving are generally going to be on the higher income side. And it turns out that the exit rights are going to be something which is going to interfere with the ability of these states to meet their budgets in some kind of a responsible fashion. Uh, there is just one point I would make, which is virtually every city in every state which has got itself into this kind of a pickle is governed by some kind of a progressive government. And it turns out they're reaping the whirlwind at this particular point in time. I'm still a believer of old-fashioned you know, budgets as, or virtues, keeping budgets balanced to the extent that it is possible, making sure that all people treat it equally and equitably before the law. And one doesn't see that in operation in either Chicago or in New York, which is why I think that fact is that while many people may vocally support what is going on in these places, and when it comes to their own personal welfare, they're voting with their feet. We should just note for our audience, it's not exactly as if you're having a red state revelation, though, here, Richard. You're going to end up in Connecticut. <laughs> well, it turns out it's the city government and the location. I can't. I, mean, I just can't wait to see you in the suburbs, and you're you're right on lawnmower in the middle of the summer. And well, I mean, I'm not going to be on a lawnmower. Uh, I'm not going to be wearing a tank top. <laughs> I'm, uh, and I'm, it's also it's closer to my my family in the east, and it's within easy distance of New York. We will still keep an apartment in New York City, um, uh, but what we're doing is we're cutting out a full time residence in Michigan and in Illinois. Uh, so it's a consolidation. It's said uh, the key to understanding all of these situations is nobody who treats this thing as a single element that does or does not it's just a weight that goes into the regression equation of all the factors you take into account that's the way i think of it and as the weight starts to get bigger it means that other factors which before may have been indeterminate now start to coalesce and that's always the danger when you have governments they forget that in a huge population there's always somebody who's pretty close to the margin no matter where that margin is and so you can't get yourself into the frame of mind where you say, well, it's only just a little bit of a tax increase. It's only just a little bit more violence. If you've got 10 million people in the state, they're probably going to be 10,000 people who are going to be influenced by relatively small changes for you know a, a tiny fraction of 1%. I think that's what they all missed in these situations. They assume that the, the exit right is not valuable. They assume that it's never going to be exercise. They're right 98% of the time. And if they're right 98% of the time, a 2% move can actually be catastrophic in terms of the revenue implications and the political implications for these various communities. The light opening chat. And you give me regression equation, Richard. John, how are you going to survive in the suburbs? You're going to be so far from your, your fancy restaurants and your squash <laughs> club and you know Bohemian Grove or wherever your chapter of the globalist cabal meets. I, I can't picture this working for you. I, I'm still thinking about Richard in the Seinfeld episode uh, where Kramer pretends he's living in the suburbs. Do you remember this? Where he uh, the suburb is represented by the screen door. So I get one is just imagine Richard sitting in Connecticut on a porch with a big pitcher of iced tea and a screen door protecting him from the insects. I, I just can't see it. I really can't see that. I'm not really convinced Richard's moving. I was raised in Great Neck for six years of my life. <laughs> I have no idea I'm where that is or what it means. But <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually not moving. I'm actually moving, hopefully. But on, on the advice of counsel, I'm not going to say where yet. Um, yeah, that's probably a good idea for you. My security detail. But actually, unfortunately, I think all my tax rates and living under California regulations all going to be the same. I think all that's changing is my view. <laughs> so, <laughs> and yes, of course, it's going to take longer to commute to work. But 
on the other hand, after this last semester and now this forthcoming year, I don't know how many of us are going to go to work anymore. And I mean, I think I'm going to be teaching on Zoom for the next year, at least. Yeah, what, what a contrast to the horny handed existence that you had prior to this, John. I mean, it's <laughs> really, you're really pulling back. Um, so listen, this is this is mostly going to be a Supreme Court sort of wrap up episode for us. But we probably, I guess, have to start with the legal news of the hour, which is President Trump uh, commuting Roger Stone's sentence. And we'll do it this way. I am happy to hear either one of your thoughts on the propriety of that. But let me root it in a, a slightly bigger question. So there's an editorial in The Wall Street Journal today, critical of this commutation, saying the president would have been better off just saving up his capital for a pardon of Michael Flynn, which they think is more justified. And in the course of making this argument, they bring up some of the more controversial pardons we've seen from Democratic presidents in recent years. Bill Clinton with Susan McDougal and Mark Rich, Barack Obama with Chelsea Manning and Oscar Lopez Rivera, the Puerto Rican terrorist. Which brings me to this. Famously, the breadth of the pardon power was one of the reasons that George Mason, peace be upon him, voted against the Constitution and Madison's response was, well, if the president uses it for corrupt ends, you've always got the impeachment power there as as your fallback. Richard, was Mason right? Was it a mistake to give the president power that's this untrammeled in this area? I don't think it was a mistake. I think the political checks have to come into place. I think the most interesting feature about this is that there are thousands upon thousands of pardon applications. And for the most part, the president is not keen on putting himself in a position where he has to make an up or down decision. So you create an office of an office of the pardons and you start having a routine bureaucracy within that makes recommendations going up to the president. And for the most part, when the president goes through that particular situation, he gets political protection. It's only when you start seeing these end runs that you start to get yourself into a a situation with abuse. And Clinton, of course, is always slyer than the next politician. He only does this as he's heading out the door. Uh, Donald Trump is is sort of, you know, just loves having a fight. So he will give a pardon to Michael Flynn, perhaps, or Roger Stone, whoever it is, or Sheriff Joe, right in the middle of the heat of battle. I don't think that there should be any legal sanctions against it. I cannot figure out what a four-cause regime would look like. I can't conceive of how you reconcile this with the uh, language of the pardon cause in any event. Um, I think it's just one of these tough features that if you try to make this a divided authority, it's not going to make any sense. So you make it unilateral subject to a political situation. I would certainly never refuse to sign on to the Constitution because of this particular provision. The three-fifths clause, I think, is a bit more important in terms of the history of the United States and so forth. And I think what was going to happen is it's going to be a kind of an open wound. Uh, but let us remember, not only do you have an abuse of the pardon power, but you also have an abuse of the prosecutorial power. Uh, one of my former students who was the head of that office and who resigned from it, Deborah Left, what she said was one of the real difficulties is you want to get a pardon. And what happens is you think that there was some serious mistake. And then you weigh in with the prosecutorial office that actually brought the case and they're always defending themselves. Uh, so So it turns out, like with all of these situations, it's one set of abuses that you have to weigh off against another one because prosecutors can abuse, presidents can abuse, and so forth. And it seems to me that under those circumstances, you're never going to get a strong consensus as to which way you ought to come out on that. But the point about that being, this is not a reason not to stick with the Constitution if other features turn out to be correct. And it is a reason to think of sub-constitutional reform changes that you can introduce in order to improve the overall operation of the government. 
John, what do you make of the specific decision to to pardon Stone? A lot of people who are sympathetic to the president are kind of pained over the politics of this, but but was it worth it for the president to go out on a limb for this? Well, I agree with Richard on in terms of the broad scope of the pardon power, and I would also point out that when Mason made this attack based on the unlimited claim, he said that this would allow this could allow presidents to pardon co-conspirators of the president engaged in plots to corrupt the government. Right. And the Federalist Papers say, well, it's still more important to give the president the power in order to break up conspiracies or to show, you know, moderation and uh, uh, generosity. But I don't think that Stone deserves this at all. I think he's very different than Flynn. I think with Flynn, Doesn't you have a, the commutation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. In part, look, you know, in part, uh, I think Trump himself knows this because he didn't completely pardon Flynn. He just commuted the sentence. Flynn still uh, remains a felon. Uh, I don't know what uh, how that actually harms him all that much. I mean, I guess he can't vote. Although maybe he can vote in a little while if progressives have their wish in some of these states. And I guess he'd have trouble getting a gun. Uh, but other than that, I, I you know he's I don't see how the pardon really affects. I'm sorry, the difference between pardon and commutation really affects him. Now, uh, what uh, what what I think it's important to see uh, the differences with Flynn because I think Flynn does have a better case. So if you look at Flynn, you have a case where the executive branch, which has the constitutional power over prosecution, wants to drop the case. Of course, the defendant wants to drop the case, and this. Judge, Judge Sullivan, is continuing this thing using a rule that requires him to, uh, requires him or any judge to approve uh, the dropping of prosecution. So President Trump could legitimately pardon Flynn in order to protect the constitutional prerogatives of the executive branch and future presidents from encroachment. Stone, by contrast, Stone uh, was, uh, he was actually prosecuted, convicted by a jury. From what we see of the facts, he did try to get in touch with WikiLeaks. He did try to claim to the Trump campaign and top officials that he was getting information from WikiLeaks. He did, although, you know, of course, you could argue about whether it was meaningful or not. He did threaten a witness. Uh, threatened to kill a witness and then threatened to kill his dog. dog yeah, <laughs> yeah kill his dog, which is much worse for most people than killing family members as a threat. Um I think the the guy who was threatened himself kind of a circus actor too, like Stone, at one point said he didn't take it seriously, but he also testified against Stone. So I, I when you look at all this, Stone is something like a circus clown now. He may have been a serious political operative at one point, but I think what he was really doing was trying to exaggerate uh, his ability uh, to put uh, to get information out there that would harm Hillary Clinton. But at the same time, I don't think this is just a process crime, as the president said on Friday evening. I think Stone really, uh, you know, he deserved to be charged. He lied to Congress. He threatened witnesses. And he was up to no good during the campaign. The lucky thing for Trump is that Stone didn't succeed. He failed at it. So let me move you guys on to the end of the Supreme Court session. It's a big year for the court. It's the first time that they've ever done oral arguments via conference call. And because the average age of a justice is 66. It's the first time that the conference call has had an audible toilet flush in it. They clearly and, don't have depends at the court yet. <laughs> and I'm not going to touch that. As usual, a big rush of cases here at the end. And one of the big stories since the last time that we met, 
was the abortion case out of Louisiana. And this will sound familiar to some of our listeners. This was kind of a rerun of the case that we had out of Texas a few years ago. The issue the court's being asked to consider is whether states can impose regulations on doctors who perform abortions that require that they have admitting privileges in local hospitals. Now, you might remember that in the earlier case, the requirement for that was struck down by a 5-3 majority on the court. And that 5-3 is Justice Kennedy and the four liberals, because it's after Justice Scalia died, before he was replaced. And uh, Richard, Chief Justice Roberts was uh, the dissent in, in that case. He provided the margin of victory in this case. Yet in the course of providing that margin of victory, he says that he still stands by his vote in the Texas case, which seems like John Roberts distilled down to the homeopathic dosage. But is that unfair? Has he actually found a persuasive way to square this circle? Well, I think you have to remember who John Roberts is. Uh, He's not a man who's deeply committed on any issue of doctrine, but he is a man who is sort of deeply committed to the notion of institutional continuity on the Supreme Court with a reluctance to overturn the doctrine of stare decisis, which is not absolute, but very powerful. So what happened is on a close case, he lost. And then it turns out that you have to come up again. And the issue is, is the deciding vote. And he could basically back his original substantive preferences, or he could decide that under these circumstances, um, it turns out there's still a majority to keep the old rule apart from me. So if I put myself back into it, I'm doing it. I think, in effect, he did it because he believed that stare decisis was more important than the decision on the merit. People on the other side are going to start the tee off. And I have the following ironic position on this case. Uh, starting in 1973, when I was uh, still in my 20s, I wrote a decision about the Roe v. Wade argument that I thought it was all wrong on a substantive ground, not just procedural due process type of issues, haven't changed my mind. And then when the first of these cases came up about women's health, um, it turned out that I basically said, if Roe v. Wade is right, then the undue burden test is met in this particular case. There are too many clinics that are going to be wiped out for medical protection. That's probably insufficient. So I would have voted conditional on Roe being right uh, to go with the majority, uh, solely on the question of balance of inconvenience from the two alternative rules. The records are pretty similar, so I probably would have voted the same way. I think the reason why I get uneasy about this is I don't believe that if a case like Roe is accepted as correct when I believe it's wrong, that I can try to smuggle in my uneasiness about Roe by taking the collateral cases and ruling in this particular fashion. And I don't know what Justice Roberts thinks about Roe as an ultimate matter, but I will bet very much dollars to donut. That case is now uh, January of 1973. It's over 47 years old. Under these circumstances, he would never vote to overrule this particular case because of the continuity question. And even if the other four conservative judges may say as an originalist matter, this is wrong, he's not going to budge on that. That's the way he was with the Affordable Care Act and so forth. He does not believe that judges ought to upset major, major political decisions made by the other branches of government. And so I think he's being perfectly consistent with his own views, uh, but there are many you know, originalists of the Clarence Thomas variety who essentially believe that if it's wrong, a stare decisis is not going to be an excuse. I think one of the notable exemplars of that position is none other than John Yu. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, John Richards said a few minutes ago, people are going to use this as a reason to tee off on Chief Justice Roberts' I feel like you're one of the people who's anxious to tee off on Justice Roberts. You have the floor. I know Richard's taunting me. He's taunting me. 
He's waving the red flag in front of me. I I find this uh, decision hard to understand, and I find it even harder to understand if you don't believe in stare decisis. But even if you believed in it, I still don't understand why it applies. So let's let's just be clear. Roberts thinks the original case was wrong. It was just four years ago. It's an identical statute that came out of Texas, right? And this is the law that says you have to have admitting privileges. If you want to conduct an abortion, you have to have admitting privileges in local hospitals. This is the same requirement that Louisiana has, not just for abortion, but for other kinds of surgeries too. So it's not like singling out abortion in any way. Uh, So Robert says four years ago, it's wrong. Now he says, but I'm not going to vote to overturn it. Now, People, even people who believe in stare decisis would say, well, you only apply stare decisis if, you know, the decision has been around for a while and it's spread throughout the law and it's a really important issue upon which people have, uh, you know, invested, they have expectation interests, we call it in the law. None of those are present here. This has only been four years. It's not overturning Roe versus Wade. This is just how far states can go in regulating abortion. Uh, it's hard to see that people built expectation interest in investing in abortion clinics that are not of a medical quality of local hospitals. So I, I just, I find, but put all that stuff aside about why stare decisis is good or bad. I think here, when it comes to interpretations of the constitution, I don't see why stare decisis should apply. So think about what judicial review is. Judicial review is the idea that if Congress passes a law that's inconsistent with the constitution, courts won't enforce it. Courts will not enforce executive orders that are inconsistent with the Constitution either. So why do court decisions, which are inconsistent with the Constitution, get to actually stay in place? The judiciary is placing itself at a higher level than the other branches of government. I don't think the Constitution permits that. I don't think people who become judges take an oath to enforce past decisions. They take an oath to enforce the Constitution. It is a highest force, uh, so the highest form of law. So I think what really is going on is, and one last thing, Roberts didn't even apply stare decisis in his own opinion in this case, because he said that he's not even going to follow what that decision four years ago in the Texas case actually said. He actually changed the reasoning of this decision, so that's at odds with the past one. So he didn't even really obey stare decisis when he claimed to. Lastly, I really, what I really, one of the things that really irritated me is that he stuck in a line saying, well, conservatives who believe in Burke or believe in, or are fans of Scalia should agree with me because Burke said, you know, you shouldn't change the law too quickly. And Scalia said that stare decisis is an important feature of the law. Of course, Scalia was not willing to extend stare decisis to Roe versus Wade. He's consistent. He consistently voted, starting Casey, to throw out Roe versus Wade. And Burke, you know, for all his uh, you know merits and demerits, Burke is not talking about the American constitutional system. Burke is talking about a common law system where there's no written constitution to measure the common law against. So I found this opinion to be you know, sort of intellectually really quite lacking.
John, you're a harsh judge. In terms of the actual substance of commitments, I think you're actually pretty close to right on many of them. All right. This I've got not, Richard to change his mind. I started no, so you didn't get me to change my mind uh, on the minor premise about whether or not the justice, uh, Chief Justice managed <laughs> to execute this. But on the larger question, fidelity to the Constitution, uh, there's a very hard question to ask. Now, which of these opinions are you prepared to overturn in some kind of a serious way? So I have little doubt as a textual matter that Marbury and Madison was wrongly decided. It was an opinion which said that Congress cannot force itself, uh, cannot force on the judiciary or the Supreme Court to take cases that are not within its jurisdiction. It does not stand for the proposition that when the various branches of government dis disagree, uh, judicial review means that the court's view prevails over that of the Congress or the president. Uh, Martin against Hunter's lessee said uh, you get into federal court in order to review a state decision that upsets a federal uh, a law by ignoring a federal federal constitutional challenge. Uh, that also, it seems to me, was clearly wrong. The original constitutional design was a total catastrophe on the point, but it said the judges of the several states had to give full faith and credit to everything in the Constitution and had to treat it as the supreme law of the land, uh, but they are the ones to decide. That's a recipe for disaster uh, because you're now going to get inconsistent decisions by different state supreme chief courts or head courts and no way to resolve them. Uh, another illustration is it's perfectly clear clear in the original constitution that a corporation is not a citizen, but by 1855, uh, it turns out they are citizens either in the state in which they're incorporated or their principal place of business. It's all made up from top to bottom. But these things have been around for a very long time. And if you really try to upset them in any way, it seems to me that you're going to bring the entire American Republic down. So the analogy that I use is to adverse possession of prescription. Uh, it turns out the longer a trespass goes on, it gets worse worse, worse, and worse, and then all of a sudden it's just fine because the statute of limitations is run. When I wrote my book, The Classical Liberal Constitution, I called this the prescriptive constitution. It's non-textual, it's structural. Um, four years may not be enough to do it, and I agree with John that uh, you just want to be very e easy about how you treat that particular case, but as a general matter, fidelity to the text, I think, is too risky a proposition because so many of our embedded institutions depend upon non-textual origin just to mention one more, there's no provision in the Constitution for Article I courts. That is, courts in the legislative branch, maybe, but certainly not in the judicial branch. But these things were put into operation as early as 1810 and 1820. And by the time that issue came up in a case called uh, um, uh, Murray's Lessee against the city of Hoboken, they'd been established for a long time. So what did the Supreme Court do? It didn't void those courts. It simply said, they're just a very narrow class of Article I courts dealing with things known as public rights, whatever that means. Very difficult conception to apply, uh, but I would not want to get rid of the tax court and the bankruptcy court because they're Article I courts and so forth. And indeed, if you wanted to create a patent court or a securities court, better an Article I court than an Article III court because of the term limit stuff. Um, so I think it's just very, very dangerous to sort of overgeneralize on this. Um, we had a recent decision on the military courts in which, again, Aditya Bamzai made a very powerful argument on textual grounds that the Supreme Court could not hear one of these decisions and reverse it. And Elena Kagan basically took the same argument. You know, this has been going on for 55 years. I'm not going to change it. So I think we have to pick our spots. I'm not, a, as it were, dogmatic on this issue. I think it does depend upon the balance of convenience. If I thought that the decisions were like Plessy and Ferguson and they had a really ugly undertow to 
them. I'm quite happy to overturn them a long time later, 58 years, in fact, in that particular case. But for a lot of these structural stuff, I think it's better to let sleeping dogs lie and hope that nobody challenges them. But if they do challenge them, I don't think it's a wise thing to say, you know what, judicial review, not there in 1789, not there today. Richard, all those cases you listed to overturn are only making me feel better about myself. Good. I'm glad that you're happy, John. <laughs> I love to toss all those cases Well, I out. mean, but I, I, it's like the, the reliance interest gets too powerful. You may want to do it and so good. But then, John, what am I going to do with my beloved takings clause? You you should want to go back to the original understanding of the takings clause that, and all the precedents that have narrowed it too far so that it's very hard to ever win any takings clause. Well, I clause mean, it is actually an interesting question, but this is and and the commerce clause too. Oh my God, well, I mean, Richard, in your in your world, if your world, if if we went back to the original understanding of the Constitution, you would actually be much closer to your extremist libertarian views than we are now. Um, on the commerce clause, let me. Get, I will give you my answer <laughs> to that. Um, I, I said it's a prescriptive constitution, meaning in effect that acts done pursuant to a broad interpretation should arrive. Under the commerce clause, my attitude is if Congress wants to pass another crazy scheme, uh, it's not protected by prescription. It's only programs that were there. And I would be much more skeptical about making new cases go under this thing as opposed to keeping a standard institutions in play. Um, and the reason is, I, I think that with the commerce clause, you can show that there's a really extremely deleterious set of consequences that doesn't arise with the judicial review provisions. Mainly, the major function of an extended commerce power is the normalization and protection of cartels and industry and in labor and everywhere else. And that's not a worthy objective. So if you want to undo that, you're not going to have the real kinds of structural changes that you would have. Can I throw one more thing in, Richard? You've also, yeah. what you do is you're creating a one-way ratchet for liberals. So suppose conservatives are basically people who believe in the original constitution, original understanding, and then they kind of layer on top of that uh, oh, Chief Justice Roberts's claim. I don't think it's actually real, but his claim to obeying stare decisis. That means when you get a Warren court or, say, uh, even a burger court, if precedents keep moving in a liberal direction off track from the constitutional meaning, conservatives can never reverse them. And I think that's actually kind of what has happened in the last 30, 40 years. And the constitutional law as a body will keep ever moving in one direction. Maybe conservatives can slow it down. Maybe they can get it to pause. But if you really be the start to say, you can't do anything too radical to bring it back onto track. Well, I mean, I can. As I said, it's not a per se rule that whatever it is by stare decisis, you have to look at the potential level of disruption that takes place in some of these various cases. And that's a very different kind of inquiry. That's why this topic is so incredibly difficult. Um, you know, uh, there are many of these early decisions, which if you were to follow them, would, would give rise to a riot. The fifth three-fifths clause was not removed in the equal protection clause, as you know. What was done is, in the second part of it, is they said, ah, if you wish to exclude um, former slaves from the denominator, you have to exclude them from the numerator. They're either all in or all out. You can't have them in the denominator and not in the numerator. Um, I don't think anybody wants to read that part of the, the 14th Amendment as being dispositive on how we think about these kinds of issues. I regard this as an extremely difficult problem. And the problem about my position is, John, I think that you're actually a reasonable man. 
some of the time. <laughs> that don't, is a problem. That is a real problem. I mean, but okay, not all guys. the time. And sometimes I don't know which John is reasonable and which one is not. And we I feel the stop. same way about we myself. I sometimes- uh, we've got another half hour for you guys to sort it out. So let me move you on. Do we had a couple of big religious liberty cases at the end of this term? I'll, I'll start with the one on the contraceptive mandate, which. When has this not been before the Supreme Court? It seems like some variation on this case is out there every year. So the iteration that was up this year, court ruled 7-2, Kagan and Breyer with the conservatives, although on different logic, that the Trump administration was within its rights to issue rules that allowed an exemption to the mandate for private employers who had religious or moral objections. So here's how I think we should do this. Let me actually have you respond to the opposing viewpoint. This is Justice Ginsburg in dissent. I am lifting here from Amy Howe's shorthand of this at SCOTUS blog because she sort of beautifully compressed this. Today, Justice Ginsburg wrote, for the first time, the court cast totally aside countervailing rights and interests in its zeal to secure religious rights to the nth degree. Today's decision, she added, leaves women workers to fend for themselves to seek contraceptive coverage from sources other than their employer's insurer and absent another available source of funding to pay for contraceptive services out of their own pockets. Neither the Constitution nor the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, she complained, calls for such a conclusion, as a result of which Ginsburg wrote between 70,000 and 126,000 women would immediately lose access to no-cost contraceptive services. John, what's wrong with that argument? I don't see why she thinks the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or the Free Exercise Clause don't require the result the court reached today. I mean, last last week. Uh, so the Religious Freedom Restoration Act says if you are subjected to some government policy that inter- interferes with your ability to exercise religion, the government is subject to strict scrutiny. That means there has to be a compelling government interest. I don't see where providing people with contraceptives is a compelling government interest. If it were, then the government should be doing it all the time now. Put aside Obamacare, put aside the Little Sisters of the Poor. And then it would have to be narrowly tailored, this government policy, to advancing that compelling government interest, which also might mean not making employers provide it, but means the government just providing it directly. So I just, I I don't, Get it. Now, you could say, Justice Ginsburg could argue, I suppose, well, maybe freedom of exercise of religion shouldn't benefit from strict scrutiny. However, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a statute that was passed by Congress that uh, effectively raised the protections for religious freedom than what the Supreme Court was willing to provide. Second, I, I think the Supreme Court has been wrong about Smith for quite some time. Uh, you know, we often on the show I praise Justice Scalia, but I think this is one where that he got wrong. He pro- he wrote this opinion in a five to four case called Employment Division versus Smith, and his argument was that if you're a religious minority, actually you don't have to be a minority, just if you're a member of a religion, and the government passes a rule that affects you, you don't really have a constitutional right to complain unless that law specifically targets religion. And so he was getting at a case like the one there where there was a religion where using a hallucinogenic drug was part of the Native American religious ceremony. And Justice Scalia said, you don't get an exemption for that. You can be prosecuted under the federal drug laws. If you want an exception, you go get it from the legislature or go get it from your governor or from the president. I think he was mistaken about that because that decision 
in a way, it made religious freedom a second-class constitutional right. If you, for example, there's no similar, I think, rule applied to free speech claims or freedom of the press claims and so on. So I think the Constitution best understood, and then Congress's elevation of religious freedoms after Justice Scalia's, unfortunately, I think, mistaken opinion, those both give enormous protections for religious freedom. I don't see why the government should be able to get away with forcing religious institutions, uh, religious, here, you know, here, the Little Sisters of the Poor, to have to provide certain benefits or policies that contradict the core tenets of their religious beliefs. John, it speaks so well. Um, hey, look, and I'm not terribly, you know, I'm not uh, going to church and sharing my view. You know, I'm not. <laughs> I understand that. I, I, you know, there are many terrible Scalia opinions, and I think that Smith is right at the top of that list. At the time that it came down, it got universal condemnation from the left and from the right, because amongst the other things that it would require is that if we decide to fix, you know, food, feed pork to most of our enlistees and they will eat it, then Jewish and Muslim people. People who find this against their religion will have to eat it as well, unless Congress wants to do something. And then under Smith, and maybe, well, that's an illicit preference, and so you're going to strike that down as an establishment or something or other. It was a horror story. Um, and uh, it turns out there was absolutely no reason to do it. The accommodation tests are never precise, but they seem to work for the most part pretty well. They were tried to, they were reintroduced under these kinds of statutes, and uh, they should remain. And indeed, I, I think the following argument. It should be made about Justice Ginsburg's point. You know, the market does freely provide contraceptives for women. And it also turns out, I think it's pretty clear that if the firm does not wish to provide the contraceptives, it may well make some kind of an adjustment with respect to the salary. And so why it is that you want to force A to do something against her beliefs when it turns out that B can protect themselves perfectly well by going to the market is there. This is the same thing that happened with the masterpiece, master cake piece or masterpiece cake, um, where it turns out you're going to start to tell bakers that they have to make cakes against their religious views. Markets are much better than coercion in all of these kinds of cases. And um, if people are left, quote unquote, without coverage until they buy it. That's like saying, oh, they don't have coverage if they want to buy it. If they don't want to buy it, they don't have to. In general, I think it's a mistake for anybody to sort of mandate that any employment arrangement tie any particular benefit uh, to any particular program. So uh, to give you another illustration, one of the reasons why the healthcare system is in such a mess is that what we do is we say, well, you don't have to give healthcare insurance to your particular your, your workers, but if you do, then you have to include the following 16 benefits. Well, that number is probably more like 150. And the number of people who say it's just too expensive and pull it out is very, very great. That turns out to be a disaster because now people are really left without coverages because the firm can't give them whatever coverage it thinks to be appropriate. And then when they go into the individual market, they face adverse selection risk, which they don't face when you get a group policy through an employer. Uh, so this is a, an entire situation of a mess from top to bottom. And my only objective 
objection to the Smith decision, or rather not to the Smith decision, is the recent decision about Little Sisters, is it applies only to religious groups. I would allow it to apply to all employees, not on a religion theory, but on a freedom of contract theory, a theory which unfortunately is much too obsolete today, but which rests on the same kind of intellectual foundations as freedom of religion. And that is coercion by the state in competitive markets is a bad thing regardless of the object of that particular coercion. So I think Justice Ginsburg is 100% wrong. Uh, There are a few decisions that actually agitate me more than the kinds of mistakes here. This is a really totalitarian kind of an approach to take to these sorts of issues. And to the extent that people want to endorse it, I beg them to think twice about the way in which this is going to impact. Um, You take... Sure. Can I can I just throw in something really quick, which is, you know, Richard and I we both live in uh, you know liberal environments, and we work in liberal environments in the university system, and you know a lot of the colleague, a lot of my colleagues, I'm sure many of Richard's colleagues, they think the court is some kind of strange Bible thumping, uh, you know, retrograde. Uh, you know, force trying to, you know, sort of raise up Christianity or religion or resurrect it or reinsert it back into public life in an unwarranted way. And so I've been wondering about this because you, you, this court, if Robert's court is going to be known for anything, I think one is going to be judicial supremacy. It's claimed that it can, you know, in, impose its vision of the Constitution on the other branches, but also religion, because this is one of three cases, right? We have that Title VII case about can you fire Right, people uh, who from religious instruction without any Title VII restrictions, and then there's the other one about uh, scholarships. You know, can religious schools benefit from a state scholarship program? There have been a lot of freedom of religion cases, um, and I just want to tell the story because when I first started went into teaching in the early '90s, one of my senior colleagues he did constitutional law and uh, law and religion. I just remember saying, "Why are you wasting your time doing law and religion? Isn't that like..." Bible prayer in school classes that's been like that was like 40 years ago why why and it was I think when I entered legal teaching law and religion was this I wouldn't say a backwater but it was definitely not one of the hot topics in constitutional law the way it is now and but I don't think it's because you have a court that is retrograde and wants to elevate religion I think a lot of it has to do with Scalia's opinion because you think Scalia's opinion destabilized the law surrounding religion, where religion was just, you know, freedom of religion was given the same protections as other individual rights. And I think a lot of this was caused because Scalia's opinion downgraded religion. And so you have these very religious people who sit there and wonder, if I wanted to have free speech rights as a communist, I would get these elevated, you know, very strict protections. But I'm religious, and so my rights are second-class rights. And I think a lot of the litigation that we've been seeing over these last 20 years, there's just more and more cases every year, have to do with that. I think a lot of good could come by just, you know, giving religious groups the same constitutional level of protections that everybody else gets. Well, I I don't know whether it's the same or greater. The the problem is if you had a sensible regime of liberty across the board, religion can neatly tuck in under the sails of a larger principle. But if you're going to allow people to prohibit and to force some various kinds of interactions for one reason or another, then religions are trying to claim that they're special. What makes it particularly galling in this case is the fundamental asymmetry. So if you're somebody who doesn't want to serve somebody because it's a same-sex marriage against their beliefs, um, you're forced 
to do so. If you turn out to be a gay operator and you don't want to make a cake for a religious organization, since you're not discriminating on grounds of religion, you don't have to take them as customers. And so it's a kind of a fundamental asymmetry, and I think that's also extremely unnerving. And this is an issue in which I think the court absolutely did the right thing, and I hope that we'll see many more situations like that. Well, one of the great busts that we had in Justice Kennedy's last term was his rather weak opinion in the Masterpiece case, where he looked on highly idiosyncratic facts of a particular decision by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission instead of stating a broader principle which would stand the test of time. One last thing about that is also, and this may also explain why you have so many more cases, it's not just that the court downgraded rights, but you also have, I think, because I, I think Masterpiece Cake Shop raises this, I think you also have a desire by certain governments in some states and maybe some parts of federal government that want to regulate things that they used to leave alone. I mean, why does anyone feel like they have to regulate what kind of cake somebody makes? But I think you do have, and I mean, this is something you've written, written about, Richard, this morality of the administrative state is always to expand, but it's also, I think, in the last 20 years, starting to get into the regulation of conscience or forcing people to have to agree with certain things. I, I, I'm sorry to go off on this, but I think we see this now with the, I think, the hostility to unorthodox views on campus or in the public sphere. There's this idea that there has to be a certain kind of list of ideas you have to agree with and the government is going to tell you now the force of government will force you know will impose those views and maybe that's another reason you see religious a lot of these religion cases because these are people who are resisting that general trend let me jump in here for one second before we move to the next topic because i do want to get you guys on record about this i'm speaking as the layperson here i am old-fashioned enough that it cheers me especially with the courts, when I see people from the rival ideological camp whose intellectual horizons are sufficiently broad that they can concede when someone on the other side has a point. And you've got Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer with the majority in this case, on different grounds, the conservatives, as I said. And they were, I believe, in the majority in the ministerial exception case as well. But when I think of the left side of this court, That's the divide I tend to think of, that Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor seem reflexively partisan, whereas Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer seem a little more intellectually rigorous, a little more fair-minded. Richard, is that a defensible characterization? Well, let me put it to this way. Very rarely, perhaps never, have I seen a case where it's been 7-2 and the dissenters have been Kagan and um, Breyer. Uh, so I think, in effect, there is a bit more dogmatism on a whole variety of issues on the part of Ginsburg and Sotomayor. So, yes, I think, by and large, it's a pretty accurate kind of a situation. Um, what I think, in effect, is so difficult in these cases is that the two of them, I seem have absolute blinders to the risks of government coercion against isolated minorities. Uh, to put it in another way, there's a famous decision called Caroline Products, which started to say in connection with race in 1938, we can't believe in this huge deference to everything that Congress wants to do because these discrete and insular minorities not being protected by the political system need our protection. Well, that's exactly the situation with Jack Phillips when he's trying to bake a cake. And yet all of a sudden now, what happens is the progressive movement is they're not going to protect 
discrete and insular minorities. What they're going to do is they're going to inform uniformity with respect to all individuals and not allow any descendants to go out. Uh, one of the things I like to say, certainly, is you cannot find in the cake case a single person who wants to have a cake made who can't get it made uh, for a gay wedding. And in the contraceptive case, you can't find a single person who cannot find a market access to somebody else who's willing to supply it. And so if you have market solutions, why do you need to impose coercive solutions? Is something that Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor have never answered to my satisfaction whatsoever. In some ways, the most anticipated cases of this term were the ones about the access to the president's tax returns. We had the rulings of both of them. So let me start first with the cases that involved whether congressional committees can rightly subpoena this kind of personal information from the president. Now, these got bumped back to the lower courts on a 7-2 vote with Chief Justice Roberts essentially saying Congress's power is not as broad here as they'd like it to be, but it's also not as narrow as the administration imagines it is. And so the lower courts have to do a better job of finding the middle ground between them. And the Chief Justice has a bunch of criteria for how one does that. So, John, is this situation going to be more or less clear when it arrives back in the lower courts because of this ruling? Let me say, someone who's worked in the executive branch and in Congress on these kind of demands for information versus privilege, I love these cases. I, it's, we're creating jobs for everybody in Congress and the White House with these kind of cases. I don't want the court to intervene and take it away. <laughs> uh, but, yes, but seriously, uh, you know, this is another case like the um, Vance case, uh, where I think Trump Vance case is the one out of New yeah, York. Yeah, the one out of New York State. We should talk about a second. This is another case I think where Trump won a short-term victory in that he's managed to kick the case past the November elections, but I think it's a longer-term loss for the presidency. Uh, you know, one is that as the court mentions, it's never intervened before in a dispute between the presidency and Congress over disclosure of information in response to a subpoena. Now the court says it will. You know, this is another area of creeping judicial supremacy, which means that the court claims the right to finally decide constitutional issues in a, in a, in a way superior way to Congress and the president. They claim that they can bind the courts can bind the president and Congress to its view of the Constitution, which I think was, was not the original understanding and not the view of the country for most of American history. Um, the second thing is, uh, if you look at actually what Roberts says, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's basically a totality of the circumstances. It says, well, the lower courts, if the executive and Congress aren't going to resolve it, and this is why I think it's a loss for the presidency, if the president and Congress aren't going to resolve it, then you're to take into account I believe it's five factors, might have been four, might have been six. But when you look at the list of factors, it's everything. It's, does Congress really need the information? Does the president really need the information to be secret? Why can you get, can you provide more tailored information? And so on and so forth. Is this really hindering Congress? Is it really hindering the president? It's basically you guys in the lower courts decide this. The reason why it's a loss for the president and I think in a way it's a loss for Congress institutionally is that these were always resolved by the way I think the framers wanted them to be resolved, President, the president and Congress using their political weapons to fight each other, right? The way, you know, if I was, when I was back in the Hill, if I want information from 
to the executive branch, I would say, okay, well, maybe we're not going to confirm five people anymore, or maybe we're going to cut funds for this program you want. Or, and that's how you would get the information you really wanted. I, and the executive branch could fight. If it's something it really wanted to keep secret, then they could take the lumps or they could take humiliation at a hearing uh, if it's really that important. Instead, now you're going to have this arena that's always been political until 2020, now going to be regulated by the judicial system. I, I think that really hurts the presidency. And also, I think it hurts Congress, too. Now, I have a view uh, which goes way back on the whole question of immunities. It turns out that a, a qualified immunity does make sense in certain kinds of cases where there's no political checks and so forth. But generally speaking, when you're talking about official acts by government parties or unofficial acts by them, the only thing that works is actual is absolute immunity. Um, in this particular case, there is a parallel to the question as to whether or not you could sue public officials for actions done within the outer perimeter of their duty. And there was a case called Barbie Mateo decided in 1959 where a wise Justice Harlan said, there's an absolute privilege under these cases, no matter how egregious the conduct, there's got to be other forms of remedies like disciplinary proceedings or political sanctions that are going to be brought into play. This was overviewed, and then it turns out we get a qualified immunity. It's not simple negligence, it's a bit more. And for years, the court struggled to try to figure out what on earth they were supposed to do with these multi-factor tests, and they never could figure out what to happen. So eventually, it sidled back into the direction of absolute immunity. That's exactly what's happening in this particular case. Um, uh, this is a situation where uh, the two cases are cases where you don't need this at all. If you're looking at what the Congress is doing in the House of Representatives, it's clearly a fishing expedition. If they want to pass some regulations about the regularity of what presidents do in office. They know enough about Trump to do it, and they could get stuff from other people to do it. They just want to shame him. I thought Naomi Rao, who essentially favored the categorical immunity, was correct in this particular case, and Justice uh, Roberts sounding a little bit too much like Sandra Day O'Connor on a constant balancing binge was wrong. Ouch! 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 You said he. Oh, that's harsh. That's a. It's meaner than anything I've ever said about Roberts. Is that you think he's on a Sandra Day O'Connor binge? Balancing binge. Well, I mean, you just said the same thing, John. I just gave a label to it. You've already given the. You've been living in the. You've been living. You've been living in the Trump years too long. You're going to start giving all the justices nicknames. You know, you actually thing you've ever said on but this you gotta show, be careful john. john there's a lot of compliments coming your way which you're, you're getting set up it's a barbed one yeah you said it doesn't matter whether it's four factors five factors or six factors because it means that everything's coming in and we have no idea which way it's going to go now i don't think roberts actually meant that i think he meant it to say that the presumption is against disclosure which means that it could be overturned but he's sufficiently loose in his language that you never know which way it's going to come but then you have the situation with respect to trying to get this stuff in new york this is known to be a very strong pro-Trump state. He's going to carry it by 60% in the general election. Um, well, we uh, you know what I'm saying. Uh, is that It's just easy in that particular state to do it. The reason you don't want these things to happen is there may be several thousand people who are attorney generals at either a state or a federal situation who can start to do all this stuff. And so this is exactly what was wrong in the case about Clinton v. Jones, where Justice Stevens, in one of the worst uh, analysis ever, said, eh, there's no harm in conducting a deposition while a president is in office. And then you have the whole thing blow up into the impeachment because you lie under oath in a deposition. It's a serious matter. 
What you do in these cases, you want to get Trump? Fine. What you say is, please preserve these documents and we'll litigate this after you're out of office, one way or the other. You never want this president to be involved in these kinds of a situation because you cannot control the adversary. Suppose it turns out you get 27 of these disputes and each one says, oh, we only want to take up 2% of his time. Um, you just get a complete kind of a chaotic type situation. So I'm a very hardliner on this particular situation. I was not a fan of any of this stuff in any of these administrations. I also think that we're much too hasty to go to impeachment. I would not have supported the Clinton impeachment. I would not have supported the Trump impeachment. I think what's really happening is the impeachment and the privilege stuff is coming together so that the president's going to be under nonstop attack. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if it turns out that you get a Joe Biden, there are lots of things about him that I would like to know about. But I'm still in favor of the doctrine of absolute immunity, even while he, I'm not going to say yes or no, (laughs) even if he should become president. John, uh, walk us through how you think about the Manhattan case. We we should kind of reset this for everybody. So the Manhattan case was, was the one about the subpoena from the Manhattan DA who was trying to get these documents as part of a money laundering investigation. And the ruling from the court here was, again, a 7-2 majority Chief Justice Roberts and the four Democrats on the majority opinion, but then you had Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on a separate opinion, but all of them agreeing that the president is not categorically immune from state criminal subpoenas. So this is not settled. This all goes back to the lower courts where Trump can make other arguments. But beyond what this means for Trump specifically, John, what what do you think this case means for the presidency? This one is even more inexplicable to me than the last one. I could see maybe the lower courts getting involved in these subpoena fights with between Congress and the president, although I don't think it's a good idea and the Supreme Court never had. But what doesn't make any sense to me at all is allowing state officials to investigate the president and hold him subject to legal process while he's president. I think it's a tremendous mistake. And that's also the first time the courts ever held that. And I think it actually kind of ignores historical precedent and the clear text of the Constitution. Here, So here, right, you're allowing a DA, right, the DA for uh, Manhattan, to investigate a president. Now, allegedly on his pre-presidential conduct, but I think it's quite clear in this case, it seeps over into what he's been doing as president, which is you know not providing his financial records while he's president too. And most importantly, it's affecting him while he's in office, right? The investigation is going on while he's in office. You know, Cyrus Vance could have had the investigation before Trump became president. He could have put, of course, put the grand jury together and done the investigation after Trump leaves office. I think that's what the Constitution actually uh, intends. And in fact, there's federal papers that talk about this, about, well, can you put a president on trial for or charge him with criminal acts? And the federal papers say, Alexander Hamill says, well, first you well, you can either wait till he's out of office or you can impeach him. And if once you impeach him, he becomes subject. He's liable to you know, criminal prosecution at this by the states, just like anybody else. The problem here is that you've got the supremacy clause, and the supremacy clause says right, that state officials and state law have to give way to federal officers and federal law when it's properly within the Constitution. So here what you've done is you've created the ability for any one of the 2,300 district attorneys in the country and plus any of the grand juries that they want to put together, so it may not even be limited to district attorneys, 
to launch investigations into the president and force him or her to have to respond, force him or her to hire lawyers, force him or her to you know, think about the litigation while they should be doing something else, which is performing their duty. And one last thing, because Richard, I think, uh, raised uh, the Paula Jones issue. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, Chief Justice Roberts relies a great deal on the Aaron Burr case. Uh, I actually got cited in one of the dissents because I wrote an article. See, this is Richard's dream. I wrote an article 25 years ago about the Aaron Burr case. No one ever cared about it, read it. And then all of a sudden it appeared in Supreme Court opinion. That's that's the hope of academics everywhere, that someone will resurrect some crazy idea we had. Who cares? Who cares? As long as they spelled the, so long yeah, spell my name right. spelled the last name right. And uh, well, that's not very hard in your <laughs> No, case. you can you imagine how many people get my name spelled wrong. Epstein is so easy to spell, but you is well, too. It's only three letters. So the, the the difference between the Clinton versus Jones case, you know, and you know that was you know, I think eight to one or even unanimous because I think Breyer might have just concurred in the result. And then the difference between that difference between that and Watergate difference uh, is that. Uh, And the difference with the Burr case, in those cases, those are federal prosecutions or federal law that are creating the demands on the president. So if the president really thinks that the prosecution is going too far, he can relieve the prosecutors. And then he could be impeached if it was really abusive or corrupt. But the separation of powers are, the federal separation powers are the main check. What this does effectively is it adds all these state officials and it kind of inserts them into the federal separation of powers and makes them like a fourth branch that get to check the president too. That is not, I think, permitted by the constitutional text and structure. I really think this is a very damaging opinion. Uh, think about if President Biden, if Joe Biden wins, well then, you know, some enterprising TA is going to start investigating him and Hunter Biden better get some good lawyers. That's all. This I'll is, say. I mean, I don't understand. I mean, the chief justice is a man who's supposed to be in favor of institutional stability. And this is an opinion which gives Trump a modest short-term victory, but opens up the door a little bit. And the problem with qualified immunity when you're dealing with intentional action and political overtones is there's no way that the door can be ajar. Once you open it up a little bit, the whole thing is going to blow high. The burdens of proof are not going to be sufficient because, in fact, if you say there's a very heavy burden upon the people who wish to get the information to demonstrate it, the correlative is you're going to have to give them all the opportunities that they could possibly hope for in order to introduce evidence, however remote it may be from the true issue, in order to make their particular case. This is a situation in which the political system is better to handle the open wound uh, than is that. And I, I simply don't understand uh, what's going on with uh, the chief justice in this particular case. It strikes me as being a very strong, very serious structural error. John is sound yet again. Ah, oh, so, I mean, I'm going to oh. have to really reconsider my entire jurisprudential career. The th- see, the thing to do, now I realize how to win arguments with Richard is make him do a whole rehearsal I'll, first. I'll give you, I'll exhaust give you. him. Exhaust his mind. Make him do an hour to a half you show and then, and then don't hit the record button. And then make him do it over again. Entire He's exhausted. <laughs> uh, now, John, I'm going to change my mind. I love facts. Yeah, it's I'm, probably, I'm a man who rich. believes in simple rules for a complex world some of the time, <laughs> most of the time. Uh, not, that is, in, I think, in, actually, in Richard, case, I'm not, yeah. uh, I'm not uh, blowing smoke. I actually think 
Dude, for people who are fans of Richard Epstein, I think that's actually your best book to read. I love that book. Well, it's the best book for a popular audience to read. And in fact, you know, Simple Rules has got a little bit of a mantra. And when I start seeing people going to facts and circumstances, I don't regard that as impossible. In fact, my latest article on this subject for a conference about the book, which was held in February before COVID, everything shut down, is to try to figure out when does it turn out that there are exceptions to can I can I suggest what your sequel what? should be? Complex because rules. if if it's if it, no no because if it's you know simple rules for a complex world, then you could say the liberal mindset is complex rules for a simple world. <laughs> well, I don't. I but this because they're wrong on both. Or you could say for no, they, they want the, complex. Uh, or for the you know for the Russians and Chinese, it's simple rules for a simple world for simple minds. No, but <laughs> okay. they, what the Russians want, they want complex rules for a complex world. Um, and it turns out that they don't work um, in many cases. There are unavoidable situations where you have to make. Yeah, that's yes. the European I mean, Union's we, we, perspective. Yeah. Complex worlds. Board what you need to do world. is, where well, you need reasonableness judgments, you have to be able to cap them in to explain why it is that you do it here and you don't have to do it in many, many cases. And the private law analogy for that is, if I stick to the rules of the road and you stick to the rules of the road, nothing bad is going to happen. But if you deviate from the rules of the road and I have to figure out how to optimize conditional upon what you've done, since you were the wrongdoer, I get the benefit of making reasonable mistakes. And that is the error. But you never want to have the basic system being, well, this ball is foul. But on the other hand, the batter really tried to do it very, very well. So since it was only two inches foul instead of four inches foul, we're going to treat it as though it were fair. That's what a lot of these balancing tests are about. And we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that the bright line rules are put into place because they work 99.9% of the time. And we have to be very careful to find situations in which two people simultaneously deviate from the rules before we start putting the reasonableness stuff into play. And that's a small, very stable set of cases. Uh, uh, The current negligence system makes exactly the same kinds of mistakes. If you go too often to reasonableness as the basic test for anything, whether it's an immunity or something else, uh, you're being most unreasonable. The, the thing has to be cabined in by a series of per se constraints on both sides. But that's why if you look at any organization, uh, you start with lines, you start with permissible and impermissible moves. Um, and if you don't start with that, then you're going to have such a high rate of challenge. You can't make these systems work. In order for a legal system to work, literally when you have 99.9% of the cases that come out, the liabilities rules have to be reasonably clear. The calls have to be reasonably clear. That's true whether you're trying to figure out whether trades in the stock market were and were not made within the rules, whether the batter was out or safe, or whether the ball was in or out of play in a game of tennis. And I, I think the inability to understand that and that great temptation that we have, the more factors we put into play, the richer we are, which is the way you began this discussion, John. That's a very, very dangerous uh, way. I was just about to say, I'm sorry, you just made a bunch of complex statements for a simple podcast. <laughs> I'm talking about Troy. I'm talking about, I'm defending Troy there. I mean, the arguments are actually kind of subtle. We can't redo the whole thing. We can't redo the whole thing. We're running out of time. And I do want to, I mean, we're right up against the end of the hour, but I do want to, as we leave, just talk a little bit about the Oklahoma case, which may be the most interesting one of all. So this was um, this was not one of those blow-dried cases where someone waited for a plaintiff with just the right profile. The plaintiff here was convicted of incredibly heinous sex crimes. 
but he was also a Native American whose conviction came in the part of eastern Oklahoma that was set aside for the Creek Nation under the treaty terms around the Trail of Tears. By the way, that landmass totals almost half of Oklahoma, including most of Tulsa. And he sued on the ground. Did anyone notice? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, unkind. nobody. Unkind. You're lucky that Tom Colbert is no longer still alive because he'd be coming for you. He, uh, so this man sued on the grounds that that treaty has never officially been withdrawn from, which should mean that only the federal government could try him, that the state of Oklahoma did not lawfully have sovereignty over a Native American in this area. And the court ruled five to four, Justice Gorsuch with the liberals, that he was right, that the treaty should still be considered operative with all the attendant implications for sovereignty. So, so John, what do you make of Gorsuch here, and, and how significant are the practical implications of this? So one, I wouldn't blame most people for skipping over this case, given all the blockbusters we had. But two, how would I put it? I, I received an inquiry from what I would call a judicial descendant, uh, a child of a judge, <laughs> asked me a question saying, what, what is going on here? What, what theory of interpretation is going on here? Uh, you know, you're, you, what's Gorsuch doing here? Because right, Gorsuch was in the majority. And actually, the main dissent is written by John Roberts, who accuses Gorsuch of being too much a textualist and not enough of a originalist, as it were, uh, which is interesting because Roberts joined Gorsuch's opinion in the Title VII case involving gays and the transgender, where I, I kind of think Gorsuch did the exact same thing there as he did here. So to, to just put in brief, because it's very complicated and a lot of it depends on how you read a lot of different statutes and treaties over a course of decades and decades. Uh, basically, the question is, when the Native American tribe here went to the reservation in Oklahoma, right, they had to leave uh, a, a very sad, I think, um, a very sad, despicable way, actually, but they were forced to leave their original grounds and they had to they were forced to move to Oklahoma, uh, they were given uh, territory. And this was pre-Civil War. So the interesting historical question is, you know, this tribe basically fought on the side of the South. They had slaves, they cooperated with the Confederacy. And so the question is, is so interesting, is that after the Civil War, did the uh, disloyalty to the Union of this tribe essentially reset their relations? with the United States? Or did they continue to enjoy the sort of benefits and privileges that they had received under treaties and under uh, federal action from before the Civil War? So Gorsuch, it's interesting. Gorsuch says, well, if Congress really wanted to downgrade relations, it really wanted to end the very generous benefits that the tribe had received in Oklahoma, they should have clearly said so in a text. And he said, but I don't see that. I read the text of the treaty. I don't see anything that says it's clearly terminated. I read these laws that passed afterwards. They don't say clearly terminated. Um, and that way, it's kind of like his Title VII case that we were talking about, because there he says, well, you know, discrimination on the basis of sex. Well, Congress doesn't really say very much about what sex means, so I can kind of read it in a certain way. And 
Chief Justice Roberts says, I think rightly so, he says, no, the weird thing is he voted for that opinion in the Title VII case. But here he says, well, you can't take those words out of context. What did, you have to look at the historical context, the the likely meaning of all these statutes and actions of the federal government after the Civil War. And he says, if you look at that fairly, it shows that nobody thought that the Indian tribes still enjoyed the rights and privileges that they had before the Civil War because they had joined up with the Confederacy and they had slaves. And the only way that all these laws make sense is in that historical context that they had lost their favorite status. Uh, the interesting thing is, why didn't he say that with the Title VII case too, to Justice Gorsuch's opinion about, well, did anyone in 1964 think they were granting uh, rights to gays or the transgender? Of course not. Because may I just get a word in edgewise after John? Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to go so long. It's just it's so complicated, I'm but interesting. Gonna, look, I, I'm going to make a And Indian law is not my area. <laughs> yeah, well, it doesn't have to be your area. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, I, I think he flunks textualism twice, um, but he flunks it on different grounds. In the first case, having to deal with Bostocka, what he's trying to do is to use a purely textualist approach to get, as John said, a result that nobody understood or came to. That's because he asked the wrong question. He asked the question, well, if a woman is allowed to be attracted to a man, um, why can't the man be allowed to be attracted to a man? So it's sex discrimination. But of course, the obvious prompter is it's the same sex issue so that neither men nor women will be protected to the extent that they have effective relationships with members of their own sex, and it doesn't discriminate. And that's all you have to say in order to come out the other way, and everybody would have said amen. The problem with the second case isn't turning about using the wrong meaning of the terms. What John really said is uh, there is a whole series of doctrines known as uh, impossibility, frustration, change of purpose, rabus sixtantibus, change in circumstances. And what they say is if the text requires something, and there are a whole variety of excusing uh, conditions that lead to the termination of the arrangement, you read them in. Implied conditions have been read into contract terms since at least Roman times, and certainly well established as early as the 15th and 16th century in England. And what John said is look, if you decide that you're going to go into outright rebellion against the United States, uh, you cannot repudiate the nation and still keep the benefit of the treaties once you come back in, and that these would be regarded as excusing or um, exonerating events. And so it's just crazy, I think, to sort of assume that if you withdraw, you continue to own slaves, and you come back into the Union, uh, that you were put back into this earlier position when everybody else who came back in, uh, in all the decisions that talked about repatriation from the South, it was made very, very clear that the union laws provided and that the Southerners were not going to be able to keep any of those kinds of prerogatives. So it is a, a kind of a wrong position. The question is just how far does it go? I mean, this is criminal prosecution over Indians, uh, but what about any land title dispute within this area? If two people have an adverse possession claim in the city of Tulsa, which is part of the Creek Reservation, does it mean that they have to go to Indian court to resolve it? I hope not. Uh, but I mean, I just don't understand what Justice Gorsuch is trying to do. Just in many of these cases, I don't understand what Justice Roberts is trying to do. It seems to me that there are many more mundane ways to get these cases right, and we should prefer those to these wildly exotic ways of getting these cases wrong. So then my closing question for the both of you, this term is over, the full record is in. We talked about this a little the last time before this case came down, Bostock had just come down. As long or as brief as you'd like, this session having ended, are you nervous about Gorsuch yet, John? Yes. 
Oh, no, no, go ahead, Richard. Richard, right Well, yes, but I mean, I am because I've seen these two decisions that are very, very strange. I mean, uh, he's an awfully smart guy, has a tremendously distinguished record. He was an absolutely lights-out lawyer. And there was no evidence of any of this when he was sitting on the Tenth Circuit as a lower court judge. But I regard this as a kind of an intellectual form of curiosity that has gone astray. I mean, what you really need is to take all sorts of intellectual power and use Use it to defend conventional results rather than to use this thing to take you off into land where you go not where you you know not where you go. And so I am a little bit strange because I don't know what this is going to lead to. I think both of these decisions are profoundly wrong. Um, and I think where he's more conventional, I think he's by and large very sound, very smart, and very right. So I'm a little bit worried about all this. I'm worried about the Chief Justice. It's quite clear that there is no five-member conservative coalition. There's a relatively reliable three, um, Kavanaugh, Alito, and Thomas, uh, but there is certainly not a a uniform block of five that stands meaningfully on any large set of issues. And on the other side, as we said, it's mainly 4-0, and where they do split on second-tier issues, it tends to be 2-2 with Ginsburg and sort of Mayor being further to the left than Breyer and Kagan. John? I had friends, uh, and I've seen it in the press too, a lot of conservatives are down on Kavanaugh, uh, not Kavanaugh, I'm sorry, Gorsuch, not really so down on Kavanaugh, actually. Kavanaugh hasn't done anything like this, but uh, I don't think it's, um, I don't I don't think that Gorsuch is becoming another Kennedy or O'Connor. Uh, I think he's, uh, I think he's really trying to follow in the footsteps of Justice Scalia, and people forget you know, what it was like when Scalia first joined the bench, and he tried to make a big deal uh, initially about methodology more than anything, about the proper way to read statutes and the Constitution, and I think he thought that was going to be his uh, greatest contribution as a justice. Uh, I think Gorsuch is trying to show that he can be more Scalia than Scalia, that he's, as Richard pointed out, he's trying to be hyper-textualist, but in a way where he's losing the connection to the historical context of the words and what they meant to the people who ratified it or who enacted them. Uh, and so he gets, I think, I think he gets uh, consumed by these word games or sort of showing that he can be as intellectually acrobatic as a Scalia or maybe a Roberts. But I think he sort of gets so trapped into these games that are more like law school. Right? These remind me more about like student papers in law school than judicial opinions, some of the things he's doing. Uh, you know, he's trying to show, I think he's trying to show off in a way. But on the other hand, I would say Gorsuch has not really, as far as I can tell, voted in a way that would, should really make conservatives unhappy in any of the major issues. And Except maybe the Title VII case, but I, I think that uh, what the what conservatives really should realize is that this is Roberts's court. He's really been the fifth vote on a lot of these important cases. He's the one who's been really giving uh, the Trump Trump and the Republican Party a really hard time in the courts. And you know, until uh, conservatives get a sixth vote on the court, I think it's going to the court's outcomes are going to fall subject to. Chief Justice Roberts and the way, you know, I think he sort of manipulates doctrine, manipulates stare decisis uh, because he's worried about the political standing of the court and he's, he places that a higher value than getting the Constitution right. All right, gentlemen, that is the show. Remember, if you want to send in a question for the August August audience Q&A show, 
you can email it to us, Troy at Ricochet.com, or you can put it in the comments at Ricochet with this episode. Thanks as ever to the two of you, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, and to all of our great listeners. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.